From the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. Hello to all the badasses out there in the world from as far away as Greece and Montreal and all other places, Ottawa. It's great to have you all here. Tune into the Badass Counseling Show. This is our lightning round. This is where we answer listener questions quickly, rapidly, and move on to the next one. Just trying to help as many folk out as we can here today. I am Sven Erlinson. I am the host of this fine, fine excursion that we are all on. I'm joined in studio by KC, the lovely and ever creative KC in the booth, and Rocket Rob Roberto. What say ye, Rob? Call me anything you like. There's something we have in common. Neither one of us could rock a Travis Kelsey haircut because that's a buzz cut on the side and just a little bit of uh, hair on the top, and neither one of us has anything. I don't even have enough for that. We can't do it. What are you going to do? I don't know. It's a very popular cut, though. You see it everywhere now. Really? Yeah. Is the mullet gone yet? Can we kiss that one goodbye yet? It's uh, probably due for a revival. No, no. We just had a revival. It's work in the front, and it's playing in the back. It's like the world's fucking ugliest haircut. Anyway, enough about hair. Let's get on to the business of the day. All right. Jessica over on Facebook asked the question, is 11 and 9-year-old too young to change negative core beliefs? No. God. They got imprinted even younger core beliefs. Those messages we got, whether explicit or implicit, about our own sense of self and about the world. And those get imprinted at 2, 3, 4, 7, 9. That means if they got imprinted at that message, they got pressed into the wet cement of your soul, that means they can be extracted. That, that cement can be jackhammered and and the, the original messages that are down there on the bedrock of who you are can come out. No, and the way you basically change negative core beliefs is by allowing all of the negative core beliefs and the feelings that go with them to come out. So the way to change a child's core beliefs is allow them to talk about, to feel, to help them find words for what they feel of all that is going on inside of them. It's to honor their feelings and not try to fix them. Not even trying to implant new core beliefs. That very often, that the reason the the bad messages implant is because they're not allowed an escape. They're not allowed an expression. And they're not counter-messaged with, you are good, you are loving, you are wonderful. Talk to me about what you're feeling. Talk to me about why you're feeling that you aren't by allowing to purge it. That Those messages only become cemented when the child isn't allowed to get the pain out and the negative messaging out. And that's how we change core beliefs by simply allowing the negative ones exit and counter messages and implanting words of love and so forth. All right, uh, Christopher asks, question, this on TikTok, question, question about my son, expressing love in response to a parent's frustration. I'm not sure how to read that one. Uh, if a parent is, is uh, expressing frustration, potentially anger to a child, and the child is responding with love, um, yes, that is somewhat problematic because in all likelihood, if the parent is frustrated and frustration is a sort of a derivative of anger, if there's anger or frustration coming through to the child and all they're coming through with is love, it's potential that the child is stuffing down their authentic feelings of feeling hurt, feeling mad uh, in defense of themselves, feeling wounded by that frustration and anger. So if they're just responding with love, it means the child is likely being taught to stuff down their own feelings and that's not good. And so the child, again, once again, we just saw it in the last question, needs to be given an avenue for getting their feelings out of them. Oh, this is interesting. Here we go on TikTok. How can you heal after an affair so you don't make the affair partner be the blunt of your anger? Brunt, I I think you mean. And just so I'm clear, okay, how do I heal after an affair so that I don't make the affair partner? Okay, the question is, did you have the affair or did your spouse have the affair? Um, And because you're asking, how do you heal after an affair so that I don't make the affair partner. Well, okay, I'm gonna attack it this way. Very often what happens, and I see this a lot with guys, um, but I mean, it's true of anyone, and it's simply this, where your partner cheats, and then you get really, so let's say, I'm just gonna say, okay, so I'm a woman, my husband cheats on me, and what do I do? Who am I most mad at? The bitch that cheated with him, that whore and slut. 
Why couldn't she respect a fucking another woman enough to not take, you know, her husband? Right? And what I found is how odd. I mean, it's not that you can't be mad at that person. It's not that you shouldn't be mad at that person. I'm not saying that. But it's easier for the person cheated on to direct their anger at the person, the co-cheater, rather than the person they're in relationship. Yet, wouldn't it logically be that your greatest rage would be at the person that hurts you most? The person who actually betrayed your trust. That woman that cheated with your husband, she didn't betray your trust. You two didn't have a fucking relationship. I mean, unless you did, which actually is its own thing. We just did an episode on that. Somebody cheated with best friend and that happened to me. It's easier to be angry at the person who cheated with your spouse than it is to be angry at your spouse. Why? You don't want to believe it or potentially a part of you still wants your spouse back, still wants the relationship to work. And you fear that if I allow myself to feel all of the feelings that I authentically feel, what? I may not get that relationship back. Sometimes it's just too fucking painful and the stakes are too high to direct my anger where my anger really is. And so it's easier to direct it towards an ancillary person. But you're asking the question, how do I heal after an affair so that I don't make the affair partner be the brunt of your anger? And I guess my question is, if the goal is to heal, what do you give a shit who your anger is actually at? Why are you trying to pull your punch? Why are you, and pulling your punch means you're not giving the full force of your punch, you're pulling it halfway. You're giving sort of half a punch or no punch at all. Why are you so concerned about not wanting to express your anger at the affair partner. True healing comes when you allow yourself to feel whatever the hell you feel at whomever you feel it at. Now, whether you act on that and go, you know, actually say something to the person, you don't have to do that. I mean, you can if you want, it's your life. But I'm saying in order to heal, you have to give yourself permission to just feel whatever you feel in whatever direction you fucking feel it. If you feel hatred towards the affair partner, let it be that. If you also feel hatred or anger towards your partner, then let it be that. Why are you trying to hold back from that? It's like you're trying to avoid getting mad at someone. And my question would be, why, what are you afraid of in getting mad at the affair partner as well? Or is it that you're simply saying, I don't want to misplace it, Anger that should be at my partner. I don't want to misplace it onto the part, person that had the parent or had the affair. What I would recommend is just allow all of your feelings up. Allow all of them in whatever direction they go and just keep flushing. That's the goal. Not trying to guide or control the process. Just allow all of the shit up and out. That's the goal. All right, uh, next. How do you feel about my parents putting their finances on me to help with their poor spending? Oh, man. The first question I want to know is, how old are you? Um, and the reason I want to know it is, and what's the earliest age that they started putting their finances on you to help with their poor spending? Um, because, you know, if I'm just being really straight up honest with you, if if your parents are like 85 or 90 and you want to help out, and maybe they're enfeebled and maybe they've been good parents your whole life and you really respect them, and love them, hey, God bless you, whatever. But the bottom line is, the child's not responsible for the parent. The child doesn't exist to pour love into the parent's love cup. The parent exists to pour love into the child's love cup. And in this case, it's not even that they want you to pour love into their love cup. They want you to carry the sludge that's been put into their love, that they've put into their love cup. And that is the financial problems that they have created and they want you to take responsibility for it. So you ask specifically the question, how do I feel? How does Sven feel? You're asking me for a feeling word about your parents putting their finances on you to help with their poor spending. And, and what's fascinating is you said not to make up for or to pay for the poor spending they already did. You're saying to help with, which implies they're going to keep doing it and they want you to keep paying for it. What do I feel? I feel funny. I find that amusing. And I feel rage. I want to punch your metaphorical, metaphorical parents in the fucking pie hole. How are you responsible for your fucking parents' poor spending? Now, if your parents lost everything and they had been great parents and, you know, the farm got yanked out from under them or somebody cheated them and you wanted to help them, hey, God bless you. Hats off to you. I respect you, you know. But even then, you're not obligated. But in this case, they're spending poorly and they want you to keep subsidizing their poor spending. How do I feel? I feel fuck off, mom and dad. Jeez. 
How am I? Re- no, no, no. I love you guys, but get your act together. All right. The, to make the child responsible for that? No, God, no, no. Okay. All right. Next question. And feel free to chime in, Rob, when you have one from over there on YouTube. I have something here you might like. Let's see. Uh, Sven, I was reading your book and couldn't find out if I was a golden or forgotten child and came up with the idea of a gilded child. I don't know if that could help others, but it might. I guess he's saying it's sort of a hybrid. He sort of has a veneer of gold. What do you think? Hmm. And yet the forgotten part is there. Uh, So for those of you who don't know what's being talked about, in my book, there's a hole in my love cup. I spend a chapter talking about uh, the child who's the golden child or the special needs child or whatever it is. If you have a sibling who by their very existence sucks all of the oxygen out of the room and a special needs child does not because they're mean or bad or self-centered or anything like that, but they just have special needs. And so they demand a lot of attention and being the sibling of that person can be very, very difficult. Same with being the sibling of a golden child, but it can also be very difficult being the golden child, believe it or not. So I explain all that in the book. This person is referencing, but was I the forgotten child or was I uh, the golden child or was I possibly this hybrid? And what was your last sentence there, Rob, for your, you summed it up by saying what? Well, he said he couldn't find out if, if he was golden or forgotten and thought maybe he was a, a gilded child. That was his idea. Okay, and he doesn't really explain what he means by that, but of course we all know gilded means gold, right? Um, if something is gilded, very different from being gilded. A light um, a light veneer of gold. Light veneer of gold. And But you talked over my joke, Rob. God dang it. Oh, let's start over and I'll edit. If something was gilded versus gelded. Yeah. Very different meaning. Although if you are gilded, you could be gelded, but uh, gelded, uh, for those of you who don't know it, talk to your friends stop, who own horses. horsing around, right. would you please? Um, anywho how, this notion of that you are the golden child, well, no, that makes total sense that you could simultaneously be forgotten and be a, uh, the sort of the golden child or the one getting the attention as long as you are hitting, our, hitting your numbers, meeting the expectations, you get some praise, but otherwise we don't give a shit about you that you will only get attention, you will only get praise, and you'll get praise, but you'll only get it if you're being a good boy, if you're succeeding, if you're being a good girl and getting perfect grades and perfect dress and have a perfect boyfriend and do perfect things in life. Otherwise, no, you were forgotten. We don't know who the fuck you are. And this is where we get into what I call drafting or co-opting or siphoning or um, uh, what's the word? Whatever, where the parent is using the child for their successes that they're basically taking it as their identity and bragging on their child constantly about their child or using it, uh, you know, basically as an implication of look how great a parent I am. So I really don't give a shit about the child, but I'll gladly take their, I'll co-op their successes and brag about it on Facebook or whatever to show how wonderful a parent I am or that I know this person, you know, it, I mean, it'd be like if you met uh, Taylor Swift, let's just say. Um, and it's like, hey, I met Taylor Swift this week. And you're going to tell everybody, hey, I met Taylor Swift. Why? She's one of the most popular people in the world. It's kind of cool, right? I get a little attention by saying I met Taylor. Well, same way if you have a child who's a success. So the expectation is I'm going to give you a little bit of praise or you're going to hear me praising you to other people because it makes me look good. But in the end, you're forgotten. I don't give a fuck. It's all about me. Yeah, that's very possible. That's a great hybrid. And the person uh, just wrote back in and said, I journaled the definition, but it's too long for you to, but you got it pretty well. Well, thank you. Thank you. Lucky guess. All right. Oh, this is good. This is good. On this notion of extreme takers, which those of you who follow the show and follow my, uh, my eight, 100 plus whatever free videos and so forth, know that I don't use the word narcissism. I use the word extreme taker, okay? It's just, I feel it's more descriptive. And what do we know about if you're in a relationship with an extreme taker, you would more or less have to be by definition an extreme giver, right? And so this person is asking the question, why doesn't my extreme taker discard me when I make a mistake, but I always have to forgive him? So there are two questions really, operating there. Basically, why is there this double standard that basically he doesn't uh, forgive me, but I always have to. I'm obligated to forgive him. There's an expectation. That's sort of question one. Why is there that double standard? It's just, or not even a question. It's just, it's just not fair. No, it's not fair. And that's why they're called, why I call them extreme takers. They're happy to take and they expect you to forgive them. They're taking something from you, the, your forgiveness, but they're not gonna give you forgiveness, so they're not gonna whatever. But then your question is quite logical. Well, then why don't they just discard me? Why doesn't my extreme taker discard me when I make a mistake? Ah, now we're getting to the nub of the issue. Why 
if you start, it, it really gets to why when people go to leave an extreme taker, or as some people like say, a narcissist, when you go to leave an extreme taker, what do they do? You know, you've been telling them, I need this, I need more love, I need more affection, I want you to spend more time with the kids and me, or whatever you've always wanted. I want you to listen in conversations rather than just always talking about yourself. Whatever it might be, you've been saying it for years of what you wanted from your extreme taker. Finally, you're just so fucking sick of it, fuck this shit, I'm out of here, or you've now cheated on me four times, I'm leaving this time, this time I'm really leaving. And you go to leave, or you get the separation, or you find your own apartment, or whatever it is, and what do they do? They change. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus Almighty. They changed. I have changed, right? And they're selling that shit up and down. I've so fucking changed and I'll never do that again. And I'm going to go to therapy and we're going to be happy and you're wonderful. And I think you're the best and I'm so lucky. And I'm so sorry I did this, that, and the other thing. Everything's changed, right? And you're like, oh, sweet Jesus Almighty. I finally have the person I've always wanted. Now I got him. Huh. That was quick, a couple of weeks, maybe a month or two, and they're, they've already, they've changed. Huh, makes you wonder if there's maybe something going on there. Well, there is. My first question is, how did they change so quickly? No, you don't change from extreme taking that quickly. No, not, not even if you're doing a deep dive with badass counseling, do you change that fucking quickly? No, that's minimum, minimum six months minimum. And that's if you're going extraordinarily deep, extraordinarily quickly. That's what I do. Most therapists don't because you're doing doing in one hour blocks. I deal in six, two, four, and six hour blocks. We move extraordinarily fast because my clients don't want to change three years, eight years from now. They want to change now. Okay. But that's not even the question. The question is, the question is not just how do they change so fast, but why now? If they could have changed supposedly this quickly now, why didn't they do it six months ago? Why didn't they do it six or 16 years ago? Why? Because they didn't have to. Because there was no pain point. There was no incentive. They were getting everything. Remember, an extreme taker is in a relationship with an extreme giver. They're getting all you're giving. Why the fuck would they change? What's the incentive? There's no pain in it. It can be whatever dickhead, fuckhead they want to be, and you'll just keep giving. Fuck it, why would I change? Oh, you're gonna leave? Oh, yeah, okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna listen to all your conversations. I'm gonna apologize for everything. I'm gonna go to therapy. You're the best. I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually be nice to your bitch sister. I'm gonna do anything, right? But it's even worse than that. Not just, how'd you do it so quickly? Not just why now, but here's the real kicker, I think. The real kicker is, how is it that all of the changes that I've been saying I wanted for 23 years or for eight years, you just made. I've, I've been telling you all these things for years, you never changed, and now you literally just made them, which implies all those times that I said to my girlfriends, you just, he just doesn't understand me, he just doesn't get it, or you know what, no, he heard you the whole time. She, your extreme taker in your life, whoever you're in a relationship with, they heard you the whole time. That's how they could identify the changes that they knew you would most want. They've been hearing you the whole fucking time. They just didn't care. The mere fact that they have changed, whatever the velocity, but especially if it's in a few months, fuck that. The mere fact that they have changed should be the most offensive thing possible to you. Why? because they've changed into the very thing you've been saying all these years, which means they had been listening the whole time and they were saying, fuck you, the whole time. If that's not offensive to you, shit, you've got so much fucking counter-programming inside of you, so much conditioning inside of you that says you suck from your childhood, that's what you're really fighting against. That was a fun little question. Or put uh, another way, how could I be a narcissist? I'm perfect. <laughs> What's 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 the other saying? Uh, nothing will anger a narcissist more than being accused of something they definitely did. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Here's an interesting question. And does empathy exist from birth or do you lose it over time? And I don't really know. Um, does empathy exist from birth? Yes, I absolutely. It absolutely does. And so does taking from birth. All of these are just natural things, all right? And but you ask the question, can 
you lose empathy over time. Sure. Those two things are not in opposition to each other. You can simultaneously have it from birth and you can lose it over time or it can increase over time. I personally believe that the natural human state is a state of love and is a state of giving and that our natural human state is also one of honoring the needs of our own self. The child wants food. The child will grab for the piece of candy, just like my, my dogs. My dog, Gunner, will try to eat the little dog's food. He's a Rhodesian Ridgeback. The, the desire to want, to eat, to grab something, to play with something is a natural one. Now, we can't always do that. And so we learn that part of living in community is that I don't always get to have everything I want. But that is a natural desire. To fulfill our own wants is a natural desire. So if you're 19 or 29 or 47 and you don't have wants or you don't feel justified in expressing your thoughts, your feelings, your dreams, your aspirations, and you say, I don't even have any dreams, it's not your natural state. You've been corrupted from your natural state. Simultaneously, it is our natural state to give. Why? Because giving feels so profoundly good. <laughs> I mean, until a certain point, then it uh, bleeds the life out of a soul. But giving feels good. These are all parts of our natural state. These are all just natural reflexes of being human. And so if we're not, if one or two or whatever of those are missing, then something, some messages have corrupted you way back here and some pains have corrupted you way back here that are causing you to not live in your sort of natural state. All right. Uh, there'll be more to come, but right now, let's take a quick break. I'll be right back. Okay. Well, you've, you've heard the podcast. You've listened to other people's issues. Maybe you've studied hundreds of Sven's TikTok videos. Time to stop lurking, face your fears, and focus directly on the one person in your life who can benefit the most from Sven's experience and insight. Now, that would be you. Just go to badasscounseling.com and order Sven's book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. Or check out his many video courses. Sven found a way to help himself out of a 12 years depression. It worked for him, and it can work for you too. Check out badasscounseling.com today. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. Hello, badasses. Good to have you here. Good to have you back. All right. I've got a question here, a couple of questions. This one's back over on TikTok. What do you tell teenagers why you left your extreme taker? Um, I would counter that question with the question, what are they asking? Are they asking, why do you leave? Or are you just feeling the need to inform them? And it's good to inform them. Children shouldn't be left in the blue. And in fact, you, you should say to them, especially at teenage level, saying, you know, let's talk about what's happened. Because this has been a uh, major trauma in their life. The two people that they were living with and potentially loved the most in life, it was if it was mom and dad or whoever raised them, uh, are splitting up. That's traumatic. And just glossing over it and pretend it didn't happen or just neglecting their feelings, uh, that's not good. And you're not saying that. You're actually trying to talk it out, which is great. That's fantastic. What do you tell them? I'm in favor of the truth. Now, you don't have to go into excessive detail, but telling them the truth. It was, uh, if it was, if it was a close thing, you know, like, if it was a relationship where, you know, two people really were trying and it just failed and there wasn't one clear, like really bad person, there's no need to demonize the other person. But even in this case where you say it was with an extreme taker, you don't have to demonize the other person, but you can say, you know, uh, you know, mommy was uh, really cruel. And I think you guys probably saw it and it was hard. And I just didn't, I not only couldn't I do it anymore, I didn't want to do it anymore. I tried to make it work and it didn't work. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean, and it gets a little tricky, a little nuanced, because you don't want to undermine their relationship with their other parent. I mean, unless it's abusive, then yes, you have every right to fight, particularly in courts, to make sure that they don't uh, aren't having to be subjected to abuse. But very, it's very easy to let our own feelings creep in. It's very easy to demonize the other parent when it, you're hurting that child as much as you're hurting the other parent, just so you can get off on harming the other parent but you're really harming your child. Why? Because your children naturally love their parents. Hell, we just recorded a couple episodes of the show earlier today. And in both episodes, we had someone who hadn't, you know, a, a really not good parents. And yet at 41 or at 63, they still love their parent. That's how powerful the love of a child is for a parent. In fact, I write about it in my book. I have a chapter on it. It's a controversial chapter. Children love parents more than parents love children. 
people like, no fucking way. I love my, no way. I love my kids too much or way more than they could ever love me. And it's like, no, let me rephrase the question. Let's put it this way. A child will endure far more at the hands of a parent than the parent will endure at the hands of a child. Framed that way. It's like, mm, you may be right there. And that's not just a function of love, it's a function of commitment, but it's also a function of longing for that relationship, which are all forms of love, right? And so when you say, what do you tell teenagers why you left your extreme taker? Be honest, be clear, uh, short answers, and if they, but if they wanna know a bit more, tell them a bit more. You don't have to dump the whole thing, all right? They don't need to know that, you know, any, you know, poured boiling water over my head and he, you know, stuck a knife to my throat and whatever. In all likelihood, they know it was bad. Um, but be honest, but be clear. And uh, most importantly, though, isn't what you tell them. Most importantly is that you allow the child to get their own thoughts and feelings out. And you're going to feel anxious inside of you when they are expressing their thoughts and feelings. You are going to feel nervous. You are going to want to fix them. You are going to want to just let them get it out and get them a therapist, by the way. All right, next question. Yeah, go ahead, Rob. All right. I've been told by two different counselors that counseling wouldn't really work for me because I know what my problems are and how to solve them, but yet I still find myself struggling to take action. Do you have any suggestions on how to get motivated and take action in implementing changes in my life? I had two therapists who told me, hey, I can't help you. You know what the problem is. Fucking do something, basically, right? Okay. This is a testament to the sheer stupidity of the statement, know better, do better. Well, if you know better, you'll do better. Bullshit. Knowing better? <laughs> One of the statements I have in my book <laughs> is knowing it and living it are two completely different things. I, I had this client, fuck, I don't know, I, 10 years ago, whatever, in my office in Manhattan. And... uh Young guy and came in, it might've been longer than that, whatever. And a young guy and, you know, we did the whole six hour session thing and so on and so forth. And, you know, a couple of times through the thing, through the session, he's like, yeah, I knew that. Oh yeah, I knew that. This is not knows kid is like 26. And finally I said, yeah, yeah, you know, you do. I don't doubt that you do. Inside, I'm thinking, yeah, right, go fuck yourself. Okay, hot shot, here we go. And, uh, but he's saying, I knew that, I knew that. I said, okay, but what's fascinating is you're not implementing it. So you have the quick answer and you take great pride in uh, this notion that you know things, that how smart you are. And you definitely have a need to be the smartest person in the room or at least pretend to be. But in fact, you're not living these things. So what does that say? All right. So this is what we're getting to in this question, Rob. Roberto. We are getting to this notion of these therapists say, well, you know what the problem is. You know what you need to do. Why aren't you changing? And you're saying to them, to me now, I don't have the motivation, Sven. All right, and I love this. I really love this because anytime we're talking about motivation, that I know what I wanna do with my life. Maybe it's a dream or maybe it's the healing path I need to take as you're talking about person up there on YouTube. Anytime we're talking about that where I can't get up the motivation to do it or I get the motivation then I run out. Then I get it up, stops and starts, right? Like you have a foot on the accelerator and a foot on the brake. What a motivation is ultimately about is about messaging is that inside of you, there are powerful negative messages, powerful bullshit messages you got about yourself that are undermining your physical energy. That sounds insane, but it's true. That there are messages you received about yourself and your own worth and your own values and your own voice and your own mattering that are keeping you from pursuing it. So the foot on the accelerator is, I got these great passions, but the foot on the brake is, but deep down, I know that I suck or that no one's gonna believe me, or that I'm terrified of failing. Why are you terrified of, well, if I really dug down with this person, it'd be that if I fail, I'd ask him the question, what's the one sentence you most fear if you fail? Fear of someone thinking or saying, oh, you're not worthy of success, see? Or what a loser, see, I knew you'd fail, or you'd never had it in you. Well, where the fuck did that make? Well, who, who's the one person you most fear hearing that from? Or who's the one person that would be most likely to say it? Oh, let me think about that, Sven. Um, Fuck, it's my old man. He always said shit like that growing up. Ah, you're a loser. You're not that smart. Exactly. So you don't want to take the risk because you fear that message. You fear, and your dad may have been dead for the last 10 years, but you still fear that message because it's fucking inside of you. 
Anytime you can't get motivated to do something you really want to do, either A, that thing you really claim to want isn't what you want, or B, you've got negative, not just negative, bullshit significant counter messaging inside of you, undermining you, pull, holding, holding you back, pulling you back down onto the sofa to smoke another joint or watch another 14 hours of TV or grab the bottle or whatever it is. Your own motivation is about, and, and or, and there's another piece, and that is past pain and the heaviness of past pain. And you're so fucking depressed that you lose physical energy or you had such a fucking, you know, whatever that past pains and traumas, trauma is the big word nowadays, but past traumas that cause all this pain and the negative messaging that are dragging you down that you can't even conjure the energy to do it. And when, it, but what's unique about this question, what's the person's name, Rob? Grant. So Grant, what's unique about your particular thing is, and I see it's actually not unique, it's common. What I see with people who, I, we just had it on the show, Kit, in the last, we just taped an episode before this of the counseling episode, and that'll be going up in a few weeks. Um, but Kit talks about, you know, uh, you know, I've known all this shit in my past, so much of this shit, and I, I know there's been pain in there and so on and so forth, but I haven't been able to face it. And you guys have heard me say it before. It's like you've been running your whole life from this giant tidal wave of all your past memories and all the feelings that go with it and all the bullshit that went with it. You've been running and running, maybe by staying busy or boozing or overeating or you know, over shopping, overworking, whatever it might be to keep just a step ahead. You've been running your whole life from all of those memories and all of the pain that goes with it, right? And so the reason, and so in your case, Grant, the reason you don't want to, you can't get the motivation is because you're terrified of that tidal wave of all your fucking pain, all your past and all those messages. The fear, the sheer terror of facing that. And I'm telling you, Grant, you are not alone. Grant, I have counseled more tough people, military folk, people, veterans of war, special forces, the, the first responders. I've counseled tough emergency room nurses. You want to meet some tough folks, let me tell you. I've counseled it all. And I hear time and time and time and time and time and time again, there's nothing scarier than this shit that we're facing. I've had people face bullets, face enemies behind enemy territory and so forth. And they said, Sven, this is scarier. Facing what really happened to me in my childhood or allowing up all the real feelings that I really feel about my dad. Not just what I'm feeling because I want to have a relationship with them, but all the real shit from the past. You're, it's quite likely, Grant, that you're terrified of feeling all that stuff. Terrified it'll overwhelm you. Terrified you'll get sucked into a black hole of hate. And there'll be hate there, but it's like any feeling. It passes. You just have to have the courage to begin to let it out more and more and more. But in all likelihood, you're terrified of all these feelings and all the implications. It's not just the feelings, but it's the implications. Holy shit. My, the story wasn't my dad was actually the good person and mom was the ogre. Oh my God, dad failed us. He didn't get us out of there. He didn't protect. Oh my God. You want to see somebody's mind fucking explode when you're counseling with them and they come in and they're required to write an autobiography for me and they write it and somewhere in there it says, oh, I had a Norman Rockwell childhood. Or I, my childhood was great. My parents were great. And especially my dad, he was always there. Yeah, mom could be a bitch at times or vice versa on the gender. Mom could be a bitch at times. But dad was great, blah, 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 blah. And you dig and you dig and you dig. And you want to see a head fucking explode? When you get down to the inconsistencies between the myth they have told themselves that in this case, dad was great. And then all the evidence that stacks up when you talk to someone for six hours after reading a three hour autobiography and you say, how could dad be so great? When bop, 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 boom. Their fucking head explodes when they've realized they've been buying into a myth that was never true to begin with. And the implications of that, the, the all of a sudden, the tumblers all fall into place. The pieces of the puzzle just snap into place. And it's like, and the clarity and the sense of relief and so forth. When family myths get exploded be, that were never true to begin with, but they've been buying them. And usually it's because the person in power, whoever has the power in the family, has been selling them. All right, got a little off course there. What's my next question? How can I help my teen kids forgive and reconnect to my husband? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay, so that implies the husband did something or some things bad such that they have disconnected or dad has disconnected. You don't say who disconnected from whom, 
But you do say, how can I help my teen kids forgive and reconnect? So obviously dad did something bad. Um, and how do I help them forgive and reconnect? My question would be, do they want to forgive and reconnect? And this is really the big question for you, mom. Because if they don't want to forgive and reconnect, why the fuck are you pushing them to forgive and reconnect? For Furthermore, the, the even bigger question is, how do I help my kids, my teen kids to forgive and reconnect the, with my husband? My question is, has your husband expressed contrition, remorse, repentance? Has your husband owned his shit or are we putting pressure on the child to forgive even though dad was a fuckface and didn't really fucking uh, own his shit? Because that ain't right. Because then you're putting the burden of being the bigger person onto the fucking child when the dad is acting like a fucking shit, which is all the more reason to not forgive the dad because that that is likely consistent for what he did in the first place. Um, but taking it more at face value, if we were to assume that kids do want to forgive and reconnect, they need to be allowed to talk about and to flesh out of themselves. And it would probably be better with a therapist because you have an emotional investment in this equation with a therapist to flush out what they're really feeling, what it is inside themselves that's blocking them from forgiving or potentially even wanting to forgive. And is the forgiveness being pushed either by themselves or by you or by their father or by someone, is the forgiveness being pushed as the cure-all? Because if forgiveness is not a cure-all, if you do not first go inside and flush out all of the feelings that are driving the animus towards the other person. Just saying, I for, uh, you know what, I accept it, I forgive you, it's done. No, if I haven't done my own work of getting out all the pain and all the whatever feelings I have regarding what you did, and it doesn't necessarily mean I have to get it out at you, but if I don't get all those feelings out, then they're still in me. And I, I now I gotta be kumbaya with you, even though I got fucking rage and anger and sadness inside of me, I didn't get it out, it's just packed down deeper. So are the children being pressured to forgive, to reconnect with your father? You need to reconnect with your father at the expense of their own fucking feelings. If they're unable to forgive yet, it's because they still have feelings inside of them that are not being honored by them or potentially by you or by him. They need to be given permission to uh, express those so that they can get them out of their system and they can finally begin to be free. Then forgiveness and reconnection will come naturally. But you don't stress reconnection with anybody if, uh, at the expense of their own feelings and they're having opportunity and permission. And we have to give children permission, permission to express their feelings um, and, and get their own pain out. I'm going to take just a couple more questions. Uh, Rob, have you got one? Yes, sir, I do. Uh, any advice on working through combat experiences during my time in the Army? I made progress after 12 years, but neck surgery sent me back. What happened to the progress with my anxiety and depression? Uh, well, the neck surgery, any a, a major surgery, you said you were making progress, which is great. So clearly you are seeing a connection between doing the work that we talk about, going into the feelings, expressing the feelings, talking about the traumas, um, writing them out, journaling them out, talking about it with your therapist. You see a connection between the work and you're feeling better, right? The more in, in trauma counseling, what do I do with clients when there's been specific trauma, whether I was an airline counselor, trauma counselor, or an emergency room chaplain, or even the tiny amount of time I did in prison ministry, is you get them to talk about it. And, talk, and sometimes just talking about it is the biggest step, but talking about it, but then talking about it again, and then talking about it again, as well as going into, well, how did that feel? What was going on inside of you? What were you scared of most in that situation? Talking out. So you see a correlation. You just expressed, sir, what's his name? Khalid. Khalid. You just expressed that you see a correlation between doing the work and then the results of feeling better and feeling lighter and so forth. But then you go into neck surgery and that sets you back. Well, what is it about neck surgery that could possibly set you back in your own growth? Well, A surgery and uh, medical procedure and so forth, as well as recovery and so forth, that's a, that's a new major trauma. That's a trauma. So you're in that situation, you're not subtracting from your, your existing trauma in your love cup, let's say, and continuing to work out and pull out trauma and pull out pain and pull out sadness. In fact, because the surgery, major surgery in this case, is new trauma, new pain, new fears, you're adding back into the cup. So that's gonna set you back. But here's the other side of it. 
And, and so that's one piece and that's significant and you can't uh, deny that. And so you just basically got to get back to work and get back to the work of doing the work. But here's the other piece. And that is, it's like going to the gym. It's like, ah, Sven, I was going to the gym for six months and it was great. And uh, I don't have to take a Zempic. You know, I'm just fucking there. I don't need to lose. I've cut 20 pounds and I can see my triceps, which I love even more than biceps. And I'm getting a little bit of abs. But then six months in, you know, we took the family vacation and then we had our second child. And then, you know, I just got off track. And fuck, now it's, you know, it's four months later and I lost my triceps and I've put on 15 pounds back. I don't understand what the problem is. <laughs> well, the problem is you stop engaging in the very discipline that got you the successes. I get clients who come to me. We do a three, four months intense counseling and they have massive, massive growth. Massive, like their life has changed. Their biggest burdens are on earth and so on and so forth. And, you know, flushed out and so on and so forth. And then I slowly wean them off my tit. And then, you know, by, they're ready to take, you know, a month or two months. And then somewhere in there, maybe three months later, I'll get a phone call, Sven, I need a session. Things have gone to shit. It's worse than it ever was. I feel like I'm more down than I ever was before. I said, yeah, no shit. I said, um, well, let me guess, you stopped doing the very things that I taught you, right? They're like, yeah, how'd you know? I'm like, come on. <laughs> I mean, this, this is a lifestyle. It's like working out or it's like eating better eating healthier. It's a lifestyle. It's not a, I'm just going to do it till I, you know, lose that 20 pounds. Then I'm going to go back to my old ways of eating. No, that doesn't quite work that way. And so, and the reason it feels like you're lower and you that like you're in a worse position before is because you got this new high, you had built up your life to a new level. And so the crash down to where you were before feels worse because it's so much farther down. So back to this question then of, so that's Khalid, that's why it feels so bad is because you put new trauma into the cup, but also you stop the discipline of getting it out. Or even if you were continuing the discipline of getting the pain, especially from war out of you, there was more new trauma being put inside of you. So it's like you're sort of, you know, bailing water on the Titanic. It probably felt like at times, right? Well, now it's time to just go back to the work and trust the process. It's just like cutting weight. It's just like working out. It's just like saving money. You have to trust the process of compound interest. Just trust the process and get back to work. All right. Do you think there is an evil spirit inside narcissists? Well, as a former clergyman with an undergraduate degree in mathematics and religious studies and a master's degree in divinity and parishes I served off and on for 15 years, and I wrote four or five books in the field of spirituality and religion and was reviewed in scholarly theological journals, so I'm, I guess, a theologian as well. I'm going to answer this from the spiritual slash religious side. And I feel like I have at least a little bit of expertise in that field. So I'm going to tell you this. Here's the question again, fine humans. Karen asks, do you think there's an evil spirit inside narcissists? My answer is absolutely no. Not just maybe no, absolutely no. No, I don't. What I think inside is inside of narcissists or what I call extreme takers is massive pain. And narcissism or extreme taking became a survival mechanism at a certain age. Now, just for the record, just as a caveat, I'm not talking about clinical narcissism. Let the psychologist deal with that. I'm talking about everybody else's use of narcissism, which is probably 90% of the narcissists out there are people that say, oh, you're a narcissist, you're a narcissist, he's a narcissist. Doesn't necessarily mean they're clinical narcissists. Um, that would be a separate question. But do I think that narcissists, as most people think of them, are possessed by an evil spirit? No, not at all. No, they're possessed by a lot of fucking pain that they haven't um, processed out of them, that they haven't addressed. They haven't looked at the messages that they were taught about themselves, and so they're acting in heinous ways, right? It, it's become a survival mechanism to do what? That basically, a long time ago, somebody took a fucking, fucking drill and drilled a hole in the bottom of their love cup, and they've been doing everything they can ever since that to steal as much love from as many people as possible. That's why they don't want you to leave when they've been a fucking asshole. Be why? Because they're losing the source, one of their love sources. They don't want to lose that. It's not that they want you. <laughs> they don't want you. They want the person who pours love into their love cup to come back. They want you to keep pouring love into their love cup, right? So are they possessed of an evil spirit? No, they're possessed of a lot of pain. Go ahead, Rob. Good one, dude. I mean, let's take responsibility and not blame evil spirits. Right, right. Because that, yeah, and that's really the word, Rob. That's good. Because that sort of almost lets them off the hook. 
like this is some spiritual warfare. I, and I'm sorry, as a theologian, as an author and former pastor in the field of theology and spirituality, I do not at all believe that they are possessed of evil spirits, zero. But that's just my theology. There are lots of good theologies out there in the world, lots of good religions out there in the world. Who the fuck am I? All right, next question. You mean those rubber-suited monsters on Doctor Who aren't real? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I never watched Doctor Who, so I don't know. You're okay. It's all right to not watch it. I'm sorry. Okay. Your choice here, I have an imposter syndrome question if you'd like. Yeah, go ahead. All right. All right. How do you get over imposter syndrome? I'm 30 years old, just about to start my career, but I feel like I'm 12 years old and have no business being a massage therapist. And then he says, LMAO, laughing my ass off for some reason. Okay. Um, I'm going to play that uh, potentially joke line straight, but I'm going to play it straight. You're 31 years old, and I have no business becoming a massage therapist. Um, imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is basically that despite everything that I have clearly achieved, so clearly I or am achieving, clearly I am capable, part of me inside feels like I'm a fraud. In other words, there's a counter message inside of me. There's a negative voice inside of me. There's a message that God imprinted at a very young age, and I mistakenly think it's my voice. It was never your voice to begin with. No child comes out of the womb hating themselves or thinking, God, I'm such a fucking loser. I'm not good enough. I'm unwanted. No. No. That means that message got imprinted, got implanted. And this is where I talk about those messages that get imprinted deep into the wet cement of your soul. They become the virus infecting the operating system. That virus is not native to who you are, and it never was. So that imposter syndrome is a message that you got very long ago that got pushed in very deeply that you have grown to believe about yourself, even though it was never true. It wasn't your authentic voice. It wasn't your God voice for the theological folks there, out there. That's not the voice of God. God don't create no junk, right? Right. So that means that someone put a voice inside of you that is causing you to have your foot on the brake, that is causing you to not begin to fly at full wingspan. It's pulling at you from within. And what's fascinating about the power of this, of parental, usually parental, uh, whoever raised you, the power of that imprinting is that that person could have died when you were 10. It wouldn't have mattered. Those messages are so deeply imprinted, you will, you'll live that shit out until you're 75 or 80. And I see it all the fucking time. People say, oh, you're 18. You need to just get over that shit. That whole child, childhood bullshit is just crap. Yeah? <laughs> Do my line of work. Then fucking tell me that. Or be capable of a deep thought for once in your life and begin to explore where, what the root causes are of this. And no matter how tough you think your willpower is, and I get the toughest of the tough in my work, people who'd never be caught dead in therapy, just utter badasses or people, all sorts of people, people broken, whatever. But eventually the will runs out. The soul is more powerful than the will. And the messages in your soul and the desire for the soul to begin to live authentically and, and clearly, powerfully and happily, eventually overwhelm this life that you've been living run by willpower, which is just an adaptation. All right, this is a good one. How will we know the first time we hit a level of more dirt coming out of our cups than coming in? Um, that's actually a really great question, Thomas. And it's actually simpler than you think. And I'm going to use a very, very simple analogy. And that is, if I have the landscaping company drop a five-by-five-foot uh, load of dirt on uh, my driveway, because I gotta, you know, fill the spots where the dogs urinate. So, you know, we gotta grow fresh grass and blah, blah, blah. If I have them drop that on my driveway, but before they drop it, I put out there a big five foot by five foot scale and they drop it right on that. And I weigh it for some stupid reason that I have a five foot by five foot scale, but whatever, play along. And then I'm, you know, shoveling it away and carrying it around in my fucking wheelbarrow and all this stuff. And then, um, I notice what the next day the scale registers heavier than what it was when they dropped it off. What the fuck? And so I'm working again today and I do even more next morning. It's even heavier. And I, I, so then third night, you know, after I've worked all day, I stay up 
just outside my dining room window looking at my driveway, see what the fuck's going on. Turns out my next door neighbor, John, has bringing, bringing, dumping his dirt from his mound of dirt because he ended up having to create a big hole because he just put in a new fucking access to his driveway and he had all this extra dirt. So he was putting it over on my land thinking I wouldn't see it. Normally I wouldn't because I'm not very bright, but the scale tells the difference, right? So it's adding up. What if though, I put a gate now on the end of my driveway so John, pesky John, can't come with his loads of dirt. And then I work all day and I fill even more spots because my gunner dog urinates everywhere. And then I have this place where I used to have a fire pit and I fill all that in with dirt. And end of the day, there's like two thirds of that is gone. And then I go to sleep I wake up the next morning and it registers as two thirds gone. The scale says it's lighter. That's the difference. Thomas asks the question, how will we know the first time we hit a level of more dirt coming out of our cups than into our cups? You literally feel lighter. One of the most common words that I hear, and they're all sort of in the same food group, when I'm working with a client or at the end of a show of podcast in the podcast or talking with whomever, and I say, I'll ask at different points, well, what are you feeling right now? Or, or at the end of a session, I'll say, so what's going on inside you? What are you feeling? What's going on? And one of the words I hear most frequently is, Sven, I feel lighter. That's how you know, Thomas. You feel lighter. Or another one I hear is, I feel release. I just feel a sense of freedom. That's another one. But here's the thing with doing this work on yourself. You're going to feel heavier before you feel lighter. And the heavier doesn't have to last forever if you're deliberate about going further and further into the healing. But part of the difficulty is being confronted with. The reason people run from that tidal wave of all the pain is that they know once they turn into that pain, it's going to overwhelm them. So you're going to feel that heaviness initially. And even more as deeper stuff comes up, but you're going to feel lighter more and more. The more you do the work, the lighter you're going to feel. And that lightness is going to increase the more you dig away from that dirt pile. And eventually you're going to reach a point where it's like, holy shit, I have spontaneous energy. I'm just clear. Life is just so much better. Um, but you can feel it right away, really. Just depends on how deep you're digging. All right. And just for the record, that notion of running, uh, you guys, that's chapter three in my book. I think I might've mentioned that. And the title of the chapter is You're Running. And all the tools we use to run, booze, gambling, overworking, overparenting. Um, but just so you know, both of my books are on the website, badasscounseling.com on the books page. Badass Wisdom is my latest book. That is a 366-day daily meditational and inspirational. It's a great book. But if you're just beginning the healing process, start with There's a Hole in My Love Cup. Um, both of them are available on audiobook. And if you get the audiobook, get the piece that goes with it. It's the free PDF uh, that has all the exercises in and questions in the book so you can do it in writing. You need to be doing the exercises in writing. I'm going to take one more questione. Do you have one? I do. You might like it too. Oh, let's hear it. Is it safe to dig deep, as you say, and drag that out alone? I have your books and audio, but I know there's something that happened, but am I going to be okay handling it on my own? Well, I, I like this. I, what you're saying is I've been doing the work on my own. I've been doing it and I've been doing it and doing, but I know there's something else bigger down there. Maybe you even know what it is exactly. Maybe you don't, but I know there's something bigger down there. And I love that you're pausing. I've been doing the work, spin, but I know there's something bigger down there. And you're just sort of pausing, catching your breath, assessing. I'm afraid of it. I'm afraid of getting overwhelmed. Don't know if I'm going to have the strength. Don't know if I'm going to be able to weather it myself. I love that. I love that. Um, because it's just you going at your speed, you allowing your fears in. And I would encourage you to be uh, journaling on your fears and your anxieties regarding this and flushing all that out too. So you ask the question, can I handle it on your own? It's really two questions. One, can you? Yes, you can. Do you want to? That's up to you. Uh, and the other issue is if you're gonna have someone who helps you through it, is that person capable of doing it? But the truth is you can do anything. I really believe this. I really believe in self-healing, which is why I created, you know, all these hundreds of free videos and the, this free podcast, this is free. We don't get paid for this. Rob doesn't get paid. He puts in more time on this than I do. KC puts a lot of fucking time and energy in. Okay. No, we're, we're doing this because we believe that healing is possible. Self-healing is possible. And I got nothing against good therapy, but I'm saying self-healing is possible. And so what I sort of hear you saying is, can I do this? Should I do this? Go ahead, Rob. Is it safe? Is it safe? I believe it is. I believe it is. And I also believe that if you at some point feel like it is too much, yeah, go ahead and 
talk to a therapist, talk to your uh, favorite uh, council person, clergy person, whatever it is. Um, but is it safe? I did it on my own. I had to get myself out of a 12 year suicidal depression and I didn't have any therapists help me. I didn't have any friends who could really help. I had to do it on my own. And it's a willingness to feel all the pain, but it's a deliberateness. You have to stay stuck, rooted in those tools that you have that I teach in the books. You've got to keep using those tools because they're very powerful, especially the ones that I mention in the um, in the uh, other book list, the books that aren't by me, especially in that list number, uh, well, the first one. That's a very powerful tool. Um, and there's a hole in my love cup. But yes, is it safe? Yes. And if, but if you feel like you aren't safe enough, then definitely get a, a trauma specialist to help you. For sure. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no shame in that. But if you're ready to try it on your own, then begin to wade in and see how it feels. Then go a little further, see how it feels. Then go a little further and see how it feels. And go to the degree that you feel, I mean, you still got to move into a discomfort zone, but we're not talking about you know something that's going to kill you or overwhelm you. Because if it starts to feel like that, then yeah, go ahead and get help. All right. Um, now I want one more, Rob. Uh, this is an odd question. Where did you even begin knowing there's so much? Knowing there's so much inside of people, where did I begin knowing that? Um, just by doing this work for so long, um, but also from my own work. And where did I ever begin knowing so much? If you're asking that question, the best therapists are the ones who have done the work on themselves. And, you know, I, I had my shit in life. Like I said, a 12-year suicidal depression. And I forced myself to come out of it by doing the work, by finding tools, by creating tools. And I, I'm going to tell you a silly, silly little story, but it shaped my life. And that is when I was 20, I remember praying, um, saying, God, you know, if there's a God, all that. Um, I just want two things in life. I, I was able to, de to determine at that point in my life. I want a woman who will be with me forever, and I want wisdom. Now, I don't know why I wanted that, but that's what I wanted. Yeah, you can get the woman thing, right? Well, it turns out I got married about a year and a half later, and we had two children, and so on and so forth, and we divorced about six years later. And uh, But guess what? Julie and I are together forever. We're, we're at every wedding together, and uh, and so forth. Then we get along fine. Cripes, that divorce was 30 years ago or whatever. But uh so I got that. It turns out, you know, the gods or God or the universe has a sense of humor. Yeah, you got the one woman that'll be with you forever, just maybe not in the form you wanted it. Uh, but then the second thing, wisdom, because that's sort of what you're asking here. Where'd you even begin to know this, the wisdom? Don't ever pray for wisdom. <laughs> and I say that sort of facetiously, but don't ever pray for wisdom. You want to know why? Because wisdom requires two things. It has two ingredients. If you want the cocktail that tastes so delicious, known as wisdom, it requires two things. Pain and reflecting, going back into and learning from the pain. So you have to be willing to experience pain twice while asking it what it's trying to teach you. Pain alone isn't enough. Oh, I've weathered all pain in life. I'm wise. Not necessarily. Or I'm very self-reflective. Yeah, but have you actually gone into your pain? Have you actually experienced anything yet? And it's the fusion of those two things. Anyway, that's all I have. I have no words left on anything. That is the extent of my knowledge. I am rendered stupid once again. Rob, any final thoughts at the end of this day? Yeah, we had a couple of nice thank yous after you've answered some questions that came in online. We have such nice people that we follow do. us. Yeah, so just a reminder, um, if you uh, want to be on the Badass Counseling Show, please send in a paragraph of what you're struggling with most, what the hardest thing is. To our producers, Robin Casey at production at badasscounseling.com. Production at badasscounseling.com. And write in your one paragraph on what you're struggling with. And it doesn't even have to be on a particular topic. It can be on just whatever your whatever's hurting you most, whatever your grand affliction is right now in life. The Badass Counseling Podcast uh, airs on Sundays. Those are the lightning rounds. And on Thursdays, those are the counseling episodes. I want to thank everyone uh, in studio here, Rob and KC, for everything they've done um, to make this possible. I can't even tell you guys that this would not occur and it would not be the same level of sound quality at all if Rob weren't here. He's the unsung hero. And I'm not just being silly or playful or blowing sunshine up his ass. It's it's true. The amount of hours and work that he puts in and not just the technical side of it, but really finding the essence of the 
episode, naming the episodes, describing the episodes, uh, you know, what parts do you edit out of what someone is saying or not saying and so forth. And uh, it's really master work. And I, I, this podcast would not exist. I'd just be Sven talking out in the woods to myself. Uh, it would not exist without, uh, without Rob, especially. So thanks uh, from all of them, Rob, to you. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate that. It's true. It's true. So that's it, fine people. Thank you from wherever you are tuning in, South Africa to South Dakota or Edmonton to Kent, England. Pulled that one out of my ass. It's been great having you here. Thanks for enjoying another episode of the Badass Counseling Show Lightning Around. On behalf of the team and myself, have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day.